Welcome to a new edition of the Neon Jazz Interview Series with jazz alto saxophonist, composer, arranger, author, and educator, Jim Snydero. He grew up in Camp Springs, Maryland, just outside of Washington, D.C., and he's promoting his newest 2018 CD with Jeremy Pelt called Jubilation, Celebrating Cannonball Adderley. So as a teenager, he studied with the great Phil Woods and attended world-renowned jazz programs at the University of North Texas. He went on to New York City in 1981 at the age of 23 and first appeared on the jazz radar when he joined Brother Jack McDuff's band, recording three albums with The Giant. That led to stints in the Mingus Big Band, saxophone icon Frank West, the Toshiko Akiyoshi Jazz Orchestra, Eddie Palmieri, and even Frank Sinatra. He's got great tales to tell, so get to know him and dig this interview, my friends. So, Jim, thank you for taking a minute out for Neon Jazz. I appreciate it. Sure, it's a pleasure to be with you. Before we start off here, I just want to get into your latest album, and it just seems like it would have been a lot of fun to team up with Jeremy Pell to do Jubilation celebrating Cannonball. What what kind of fun was that for you to do? Oh, it was a tremendous joy. I mean, uh, honestly, we didn't rehearse for the the date at all. Um, We had done uh, a weekend at Smoke, in New York City back in September. That was with Al Foster, and then we decided to do a record, and we did it at the end of December and had Billy uh, Drummond on it. And we didn't even rehearse. We just went in, and uh, everybody knows the music, you know, knew it very well. It was one of those dates where it was just kind of magic. I mean, no one was trying to... uh, uh, show off or anything like that. It was it was a, a team effort and um, uh, the best kind of interplay and um, group effort and um, it was a joy. I mean, we we did the whole record and I think it was something like five hours. So it was one of those ones where it just happened. The thing about Cannonball is is that he's right up there with Miles and and Coltrane and all these iconic players. Why is it? For a guy like Cannonball, why is his music so endearing? Why will it live forever? Well, I think it's the joy in it. Well, it's Cannonball. I mean, it's uh, it's his personality, his intellect, his um, sense of joy and fun, but at the same time, just a serious master of the music and of the instrument and all of it coming together um uh, to really uh, make some profound uh, music that moves people and makes them feel good. I mean, not all music is like that. Uh, and uh, yeah, I think he's unique uh, in jazz in, in, in that sense. Well, he is unique. It's, every individual, obviously, is unique, but uh, he's special in that way. So let's get into your life a little bit. You were uh, grew up outside of D.C. in Camp Springs, Maryland. Talk to me about your childhood. How did you get involved with jazz? It was the typical story, Joe. I had a great band director in middle school, and um, he started a jazz band. And it was one of those things where uh, the very first time we rehearsed in a big band, I knew that's what I was going to do. I just loved it so much. I still remember what we rehearsed. I was probably about 13 years old. And so I was very fortunate to have that direction and instruction at a very young age. And D.C. is a great place to grow up. It was a great place, and I'm sure it still is. 
great place to grow up, uh, you know, loving and wanting to learn jazz. There's lots of great players around there. The best military uh, jazz bands are in D.C., and they're all very serious players. So I took lessons with, you know, great musicians, great jazz um, soloists, and um, we had uh, a, a very good high school band, too. So... It was the typical story, great teacher, uh, great private teachers, supportive parents, just all came together for me. So my teachers in, in D.C. said, you got to check out Phil Woods. And he was really hot on the scene at that time, and um, I got the records, and I was immediate. He was the guy that really lit the fire for me. Uh, I wasn't actually introduced to Cannonball until later when I was in college, and Cannonball had already passed away, unfortunately, so I never got to see him play. Uh, but Phil was someone that I got to know. Uh, I studied with, you know, he was the one that lit the fire for me as far as being really serious about uh, becoming a jazz saxophonist, jazz alto saxophonist, and, uh, you know, developing a love for the alto saxophone, too. You know, when you're 18 years old and someone like that is playing right in front of you, it, it makes a big impression. You know, I always hear so much about the University of North Texas, and it just doesn't seem like that's the mecca, but it is for jazz and for music. Talk to me about your experience there and why it was so important in your growth. Well, because um, I wanted to go somewhere where uh, I was inspired and that I knew that there would be better players than me, and at that time there weren't very many um jazz programs of that caliber. Now it's different. There are a lot, I think. North Texas is still one of the very best. But back then, there weren't many choices, and North Texas uh, was one of the top three, I would say, in the country. And um, also, there was a graduate program at North Texas, which was pretty unusual in jazz, you know. So there were players there that were much older than me. And when I went to school, there were about 125 saxophone players in the program. So it was an enormous exposure to uh, saxophonists from all over. And, uh, you know, the the uh, people that I met and made friends with uh, back then are still some of my best friends and have have done great things both as um, jazz uh, performers and soloists and as uh, teachers. So it was the right move for me. I, I really enjoyed it. And when you're stuck in the middle of a small town in Texas, you know, a kid from D.C., there's not a whole lot to do. So <laughs> you end up talking and playing, talking about jazz and playing jazz a lot. You know. The other very instrumental jazz player in your life that not only was a great teacher but a phenomenal musician was Dave Liebman, and he convinced you to make another move to New York. Talk to me about that relationship and why New York made sense. Well, Liebman was someone that I got introduced to in college, and, um, you know, we were very, as students, my friends and I were very interested in Coltrane's group uh, with Alvin and McCoy. Jimmy Garrison and Miles' group with, um, you know, especially with either George Coleman or um, Wayne Shorter, Herbie, Ron, and Tony. And so Liebman had played with Miles and he played with Elvin. And so this was like a, a direct lineage for me and for us uh, to, those, to those groups. And you've got to remember this was in the late 70s, so... Uh, <clears throat> 
you know, the train hadn't been gone that long and Miles was still active. So uh, Liebman was very important. It was the link, and um, I really got into that style. I played a lot of soprano saxophone back then. Uh, I was uh, studying his music and sent some of his transcriptions and that kind of thing to him as a, a student, and uh, we became friends, and then I studied with him. Well, he's the one that told me to come to New York, as he said, and, and that gave me the confidence to do it. And when I came to New York, uh, I studied with him. And so he was kind of the bridge between college and being a pro. So you get into New York. You talked about, you know, it was the late 70s, early 80s. You start recording with Jack McDuff, and then you just kind of take off from there. You're with Frank West, Toshiko Akiyoshi, and you're just moving on. So did it happen really fast, or did it seem like it was just a logical progression of playing with these kinds of players? Well, getting the gig with Jack did happen fast. I came to New York in 81, in the fall of 81, and about the uh, beginning of 82, I had recorded with Jack, and he asked me to be in his band. So I was on the road with the bona fide jazz star, organ master, crisscrossing the country, uh, playing in all these great clubs and meeting all these great musicians and did a total of three recordings with him. Uh, so that did happen really fast. And um, then uh, Lou Tobacken called me up when I was with Jack and he said that they had moved to uh, Tushko and he had moved from L.A. and they were starting a band in New York and uh, Arnie Lawrence, a great alto player, recommended me to, to Lou. And honestly, I told him I, I just didn't feel like I was prepared for it because I hadn't been doubling at all when I was with uh, Jack. I hadn't been playing the flute or clarinet. I just didn't think I could handle the gig. So I said, uh, I told him that. And then he said, okay. And then he called me back about a month later. And he said, just come on over and, and give it a try or whatever. And it was a great thing that he did that because uh, I started playing with a band. And Toshiko asked me to do my first recording as a leader. In 1984 for EMI, that was Penny Kirkland and Billy Hart, George Moraz, and, and Brian Lynch, who was a great friend of mine. That was kind of the beginning of my solo career. So that all happened pretty quick, I would say. And then there was a period where things were slower. You know, I was working with various uh, big bands and recording with peers and things like that. But it wasn't extremely busy. You know, I'd say the 90s were kind of a slower period for me. And then uh, after that, uh, I, I wrote these books that uh, became quite popular in the 90s. And that became a, an important part of my career. Uh, it kind of gained a new fan base from that and um, was able to start recording for Milestone Records. So what did you learn from the big shots when you were around them? What kinds of things did you learn that has helped you be a teacher that you are now? Well, it's really helped me to be a player as much as a teacher. It's uh, the commitment to professionalism, like really presenting your music in a way that is compelling and um, appealing, you know, and consistent. That, that I, when I played with uh, Jack, that was very Toshiko and oh man, especially with Frank Sinatra. I was with Frank Sinatra's was with Frank Sinatra's band for uh, I guess four years, 
and uh, he was just a model of consistency, incredible presentation. I did the record duets too with him. The consistent part in kind of the um, being able to move people with your music, compelling aspect of it to be convincing. Uh, I think those are the most important things I learned. Are you happy with how your career has turned out? Well, yeah. I mean, uh, as a matter of fact, I just turned 60 years old, and uh, I'm still uh, playing saxophone, making, I think, pretty good records. I've been with the same record company, Savant High Note, now for 10 years, and, um, you know, made the critics poll last year, and I hope to make it again this year. So clearly at the top of my field, and... um, you know, it's, I think it's pretty hard to be relevant when you're when you've been uh, in a career for you know 35, 40 years. Uh, it's not that easy to stay relevant. Um, in between um, my playing and my composing and my career as an author and educator, um, I feel like I mean, you know, you can always be better. You can always feel like you can do better. But I do feel like I've made um, a certain um, contribution to the music and to the field. So, you know, that's a good thing. So why do you love jazz? <laughs> I don't know. It's uh, serious music, but it's fun. For me, it's it's pretty much the only kind of music that um, can appeal to the most basic music uh, uh, knowledge of uh you know, someone that is a layperson, completely novice, uh, to uh, someone that is uh, quite intellectual and, and curious about, uh, you know, art and 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 um, and um, that kind of thing. It's just got a a, a broad uh, spectrum of possibilities, and it's hip, you know, but it's it's still a very uh, very advanced. It can be. Everyone has a version of who you are, your family, your friends, and your fans, and your students. But you're the one that knows yourself best. Who do you think you are? Oh, I mean, you're asking a question that it takes a lifetime to really figure out. Who am I? I mean, uh, I'm the uh, result of my experiences, you know, and uh, good and bad. You know, and um, I, I, li- I like to think that I'm someone that, uh, well, I am someone that likes to help people and contribute to people's lives. And that's a good part of who I am. I don't know, you're asking a pretty deep question there, Joe. But <laughs> yeah, no, that, that's it. That's a good answer. There's no there's no full way to wrap that one up because it's hard, but it's, it's the one I always like to end on. So, Jim, thank you for taking a minute out for Neon Jazz. I hope you get uh, feeling better, and thanks for all the music. Thank you, sir. Thanks for calling me. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening and tuning in to yet another Neon Jazz interview, where we give you a bit of insight into the finest players in Maryland, D.C., Kansas City, and spots all over the globe, giving fans all that jazz. And thanks to Jim for his cool, his music, and his stories. If you want to hear more interviews, go to Famous Interviews with Joe Domino on the iTunes Store. Visit Neon Jazz at YouTube.com. And for everything Neon Jazz all the time, the neonjazz.blogspot.com. Until next time, enjoy the jazz, my friends. Neon Jazz.